0: Welcome to the Tomball Bible Church Podcast. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church. Well, turn with me to Romans 16. We are going to finish the book today. We're going to have a summary one next week to summarize the whole book, but you made it to the end. Now, some of you had babies at the beginning, and now they're going to college. And we're so thankful that they got to hear all 16 chapters in those years. Now, it was 18 months maybe, but not 18 years. The book of Romans closes out on a doxology, and that's where it has to end. It has to end in praise of God. This just majestic letter, the Constitution of the Gospel, it can end nowhere else but in praise to God. That's what doxology means. Doxology is just basically declarative truths about God stated unequivocally that it result in praise to God. That's what doxology means, and that's where it's going to conclude in, that Paul's going to glo- close the whole book in glorifying God as being the one who builds and sustains his church. That's where he ends the whole Letter on, because we do need to be strengthened as the people of God. We are in need of strength. We have need of endurance. Hebrews ten thirty six will even say, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God you may receive what is promised. And Jesus spoke of this imperatively to us, that we need strength to endure. Matthew ten twenty two. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So how can we, who are weak? who are foolish, who are sinful, how can we endure to the end? You can't. Unless God strengthens you, you can't. And that's where Paul's going to lead us on this crescendo today that God does indeed strengthen us. But this is nothing new. This is what Jesus said. I'm giving you this great commission. I'm giving you this job to do. And lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age. He promises to be present perennially. And then Paul, when he's giving out his ministry motto or his ministry mission statement in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, he says he does all of that through the power that works mightily within him, and it's not his power. It's the power of the Spirit of God. So we know this is nothing new, but it is something that we must always be reminded of. And in these final remarks around the glory of God, what the Apostle Paul is going to lay out is three facets of faithful endurance that God provides for us, that he strengthens us In three ways. And the end of that strengthening is not so that we make it. The end of that strengthening is the glory of God, that He might be glorified. That's why it's a doxology, but wrapped in it as a byproduct is our strengthening that we might endure. But before we get to the heart of that doxology, there's a last few closing words of greetings. So two weeks ago, we saw Paul saying, Hey, make sure you greet these people for me. Now he's saying, These people greet you, and I'm taking their message to you. So these names are important for us to look at and not skip over because it's edifying to us. So in verse 21, Paul says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Timothy's the first one. We, We know Timothy. He's got two books of the Bible named after him. He's Paul's most faithful disciple, and he's always been on this path of maturity. God called him out early in life, for faithful ministry. In Acts sixteen one through 3, this is where Timothy first comes on the scene in the Bible. Paul came to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and we assume an unbeliever. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. You see, notice how he's described. He's already a disciple, and he's already spoken well of by other believers. He's, he's a faithful guy when Paul finds him. And then Paul says, I want you to come with me. So he does go with him. And he's, we know from 2 Timothy that he had a, a faithful mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois, who taught him the word. And Paul describes him as this being this established and ever-maturing young man, believer in Christ. He calls him my beloved child, in one place, he calls him my true child in the faith and another. And then in Philippians, he says, I'm sending Timothy to you. I have nobody else like him. He, he stands in a class by himself. That's high praise coming from the apostle about young Timothy. That's who Timothy is, and he's with Paul in Corinth where their letters being written from, and he sends greetings to Rome. Next guy on the list is Lucius. Lucius could possibly be the guy that he speaks a word of prophecy in Acts 13, Lucius could also be a lengthening of the name Luke. There's no real way to pin him down and know that. Scholars, we just can't figure it out because there's not enough written about him. Jason, however, is another story. Jason, he housed Paul and Silas in Thessalonica uh, when they're there and they they have this... Basically, he suffers for it. We won't go there, but Acts 17, 1 through 9, you can read it. Jason uh, gets yanked out into the streets and then dragged before the courts just because they said, hey... Those guys, those Paul and his guys, they're staying at his house and we're going to hold him accountable. So Jason gets unfairly fined and wrongfully tried before a court just for the sake of the gospel. Puts his neck on the line for the gospel just in keeping a missionary in his house in the city of Thessalonica. And then uh, Sosipater. Sosipater's the next guy in this verse. Uh, He's probably the same guy as mentioned in Acts 20 as Sopater, we, we see throughout the Greek language that names are lengthened and shortened kind of at will. There's, there's no real uh, rhyme or reason, kind of like we do in English with different people's names. Um, but if he is that guy from Acts 20, then he's a Berean. And the Bereans we know are the ones who heard Paul preach and said, that sounds amazing, but we're going to go back to the Scriptures and make sure that it's true. They're faithful Bible people. And he associated with Paul and Trous if he's the same one. In verse 22 it says, I, Tertius who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, do we just get the twist of all twists? Paul's been, we've been lied to for 16 chapters. We have a different author of this letter. No, what, what Tertius is, is he's a, what you call an amanuensis, which is basically just a scribe or a secretary. He's just taking down what Paul's dictating. It's his handwriting, but Paul's words. Paul would use this frequently. It was a pretty frequent practice um, in Paul's day for somebody in his position especially when you're behind bars, you can talk the word of the God through the fence while the other guy's writing it down to take it out. Uh, but he says that he, uh, he does handwrite a lot of uh, different letters. At the end, he mentions that I'll just rattle off some references. You can go look them up later. 1 Corinthians 16, Galatians 6, Colossians 4, 2 Thessalonians 3, Philemon 19, all those places Paul says, I am writing to you in my own handwriting. And when he really wants it to be made known, he says like in Galatians 6, Look how big love letters I'm using. I am the one writing this. Just because he's had a lot of hard things to say to the Galatian church. Uh, but that's who Tertius is. And then the last clump of people we see in verse 23, it says, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Gaius we know a little bit about. Gaius is probably one of Paul's first converts in the city of Corinth, which is a city in Greece If you don't remember, in 1 Corinthians 14, he's mentioned there as one of two guys that he ever baptized. And then he quit baptizing people after that because it was becoming a problem. Uh, But Gaius is a faithful believer, and Paul's living in his house, and the church is meeting in his house. You see that in verse 23? He's host to me and to the whole church. So he's still in Corinth, and the church meets in his home, and he's willing to have people stay there indefinitely. So Gaius is a faithful brother. And if he is the same Gaius as Acts 19, which we believe that he is, uh, he got in some hot water in the city of Ephesus with Paul on one of his on his third missionary journey. On one of the stops there, when this when this riot erupts because this idol maker named Demetrius was running out of business and he was sick of it, so he starts this riot against Paul and all the those who are sharing the gospel and killing their business of idol making. Uh, and Gaius gets wrapped up in it. Acts nineteen twenty nine. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater dragging with them Gaius, Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions. So bottom line, what you're hearing at the end of this letter is, if you hang out with Paul, you're probably going to go to jail. You're probably going to get dragged somewhere that you don't want to be. But these brothers are faithful, and they're there for the long haul. They're committed to the gospel. Erastus, as the list goes on, is a man of civil stature. Now, this is worthy of our note because there's not many people in the New Testament who are believers that have any kind of social status. Most of them are slaves, or they are women, or they are best middle-class men, or they're young people. It's not the, the, the social elites. But he being a city treasurer is something to take note of. Um, he could be the same Erastus in Acts 20, 19, 22 could be the same Erastus in 2 Timothy 4.20. It's it's hard to pin him down, and scholars kind of debate this because Erastus was such a popular name, and there's nothing else in the New Testament that would make us be able to assertively say it's the same guy, but it very well might be. Cordus, we're a lot more defined on. We know absolutely nothing about Cordus. We know that for sure. He's known but to God and not to us. And I think that it's fitting that of all the names that we get in Romans 16, the last one is Quartus. Because he's not Jewish, he's not of any notoriety, and we have no idea who he is. Just some Greek guy who is faithfully following along the gospel mission with Paul. That should encourage us. And that's why we read Psalm 13. It's easy to feel forgotten by God. But what we need to remember and always realize is that there's going to be far more Quartuses in heaven, then there are going to be Peter's and Paul's and James and John's. That, that's who God uses mostly. See, most of us are never going to attain any kind of notoriety or grand scale for our service to Christ, and that's normal, and that's on purpose. That's how God planned it, to have more quartices, that God has not forgotten us. God's not forgotten us in our pain, in our suffering, but even in just our faithful labor, we just keep doing the right thing. We just keep walking in the steps of Christ and there are no bands and there are no ceremonies and there, are no, there is no fanfare, there is no high fives, that that's Quartus and that's us. The regular Christian life is known to God. He has not forgotten. I think that that's important for us to remember as these names come to a close because most of us will always be Quartuses. That pleases God and he remembers those people. Now, before we enter into the final doxology, I know that all of the accountants in the room are squirming because there is some discrepancy in the numbers. Because we go from verse 23 to verse 25. And I didn't do very good in math, but I know something is missing. Where is verse 24? Unless you have a King James Bible, you have no verse 24. Or a new King James. It's not there. It skips. And you might have a footnote there. What the footnote says is that Earlier manuscripts do not contain verse 24. Now, without going on to a long derail, if you want to talk to me more about this later, it is well worth your time, but we're not going to spend too much time on it now. But what I do feel uh, perennially compelled to do for you is to prove over and over again that you can trust your Bible. The Bible that you hold in your hands is trustworthy. So do not get derailed by this. So why does it say that earlier manuscripts do not contain verse 24? And, and then why does the King James have it in there? The King James is transcribed from manuscripts that are not as old as the ones that we have now. There was a discovery made in the 40s and 50s where we found older manuscripts near the Dead Sea in these caves. They're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so when you're compiling the New Testament in the original Greek, you take all the manuscripts, which we have 6,000 of, by the way, 6,000 manuscript copies and you start comparing them all together and when there's a discrepancy one manuscript has it and the other manuscript doesn't or it says it in one way or it says it in another way deference is given to the oldest one because we know the further away we get the more error that could possibly be there now when i say error that doesn't mean that your bible has error it does not it surely does not but what's happening when those manuscripts are being made is copyists are sitting down and writing word for word, and word for word, and word for word. Have you ever tried to just copy a book of the Bible? Go home and try it, and see how many errors you make. It's, it's pretty easy for us to do. So well, we want to compare those, and of all the errors, this is a side note to assuage maybe your wandering mind, of all the errors that, that, are, that exist in all 6,000 of those copies, that it is infinitesimal of a percent, it's 99.999%, that is no errors, or no contradictions, but that little point percentage are things like the Lord Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ our Lord. One manuscript says one, one manuscript says the other one. So that's where this falls into that category. The older manuscripts, it's probably that uh, uh, in the newer manuscripts, a copyist just added it in because just so overwhelmed and then didn't double-check and didn't realize. So that's why an ESV, a New America Standard, an NIV, doesn't have verse 24. It's not because every Bible written after 1611 In modern English, it was by a liberal who hates God. Just to put that out of your mind. If you want to talk more about that, please do. It's well worth our time um, later. So now we move into the doxology. In verse 25 through 27, this is the three facets of God's strengthening work in his saints for his glory. Paul's closing doxology discloses to us these three streams that come to make one river of God's glory. And those three streams are his strengthening work in every believer, in every gospel-centered church. In these verses, we're going to see that our primary purpose is to be a vessel of God's glory. And God will bring glory to himself. He will not go unglorified. And so he will do that by strengthening his servants, his saints, us, to endure in faithfulness. God does not ultimately strengthen us for our benefit. He ultimately strengthens us for his glory. That's why he's doing it. And he must be glorified. He will be glorified. Therefore, he will see to it that he is glorified by strengthening us to do so. And as a byproduct, we are strengthened to endure in this Christian life and the difficulty of the Christian life as it is. But that's a happy outworking of God getting glory, that he loves us so much that he will strengthen us in the midst of his getting glory. We need to know that we're not left alone and that we have a source of strength to faithfully endure the Christian life, and it is not us. It comes from elsewhere. We're like marathoners. We're like out-of-shape marathoners running from water table to water table along the trail that we know the only thing that's taking me from this water table to that water table is the water I got here, and it's going to carry me there, and I need more water along the way. I constantly need to be strengthened if I'm ever going to finish this race. I don't have it in me. I need living water along the way. And that's what Paul's going to say, that our glorifying God has a byproduct effect of strengthening us to be able to endure. The commentator Charles Hodge summarized it well like this before we get into reading these verses. He said, God alone is able thus to make his people stand, and therefore we should look to him and depend upon him for our own preservation and the preservation of the church and to ascribe, and ascribe to him, and not to ourselves, all glory and thanks. So let's begin at verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Before we go any further, just look at those first few words. Now to him who is able. That should be enough for us right there. Our God is able. Period. He is able. <laughs> Do you realize that what worship is, is just saying true things back to God? What's true about God, we just say it back to, and that's what worship is. That's what Paul is doing. God is able. He's, period. It's from a posture of adoration. Whatever it is that we need, God is able. He's able. What good thing is there that you need that God is unable to provide to you? And think about the encouragement from this perspective. If you do not have something that you think you need in order to be able to endure, it's not because God's not able to give it to you. It's because you don't need it. Because God is able. He can do anything. God's ability is unquestionable. It is limitless. It is beyond all comprehension. Actually, Abel, the word Abel here is kind of an unfortunate translation in the ESV. I think the King James got it more correctly when it said, uh, now to him that is of power. Because the word there for Abel is the word dunami. We've already seen that word once. If you remember all the way back to Romans 1.16, the power of God for salvation, and that's what the gospel is. That's the word dunamis, dunamai. here, another version of it. That's where we get our word dynamite, power, explosive power, unmitigated power, Un- uncomprehensible, incomprehensible power. That's the God of power. In order to live a Christian life in a consistent way that pleases God, we lack power. We don't have it. So what Paul is saying here, in effect, to the Christians is that he's exalting the God or the God of power as the one source of power. He's saying to the Christians, reading this, the source of all power will strengthen you to endure, will strengthen you to make it to the end. He's where all power comes from. Any power that exists comes from him, and he has it. And I'm going to give you three ways, Paul says, in which that strengthening power comes to you as you endure this Christian life. The first way is that we're going to be strengthened by gospel preaching. Look at verse twenty-five. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now, all of these three um, strengthening aspects of or facets of God's glory are all marked by according to each time in these verses. It says according to, according to. So this first according to is according to my gospel. In the preaching of Jesus Christ. When you hear Paul say, my gospel, don't think possession, but just think um, personalization, like my dad. It doesn't mean I own my dad, that my dad's somehow mine and not others, but, but my gospel is a term of, of endearment that Paul says, my gospel. And the preaching of Jesus Christ is not referring us back to just reading Jesus' actual sermons, his preaching, but rather the preaching of him. So we should go back and read Jesus' sermons, absolutely, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But what Paul's talking about is the active, active, current preaching of Jesus. And you can't rightly preach Jesus without preaching the gospel, what Jesus did, because Jesus is synonymous with the gospel. What we see around us all the time is that preaching, is, preaching has fallen on hard times in our day. In a sense, for whatever reason, modern evangelicalism has decided that that we want a better method. We, we want some other way of delivery. So out goes the pulpit in the church and in comes the sitcom movie set and, or in comes the three-ring circus or in comes the psychiatrist's couch. We want, a, we want a different method for whatever reason, but that seems to be woefully out of touch with God and his heart for the people because when he sent a savior, he came preaching. All we have to do is look at Mark chapter 1 and 2 for that. Just see how often Jesus is described as being one preaching. In Mark 1, 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. It's the same word translated preaching elsewhere. It's caruso. And saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark chapter 1 continues. In verse 21, and they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered Jesus' the synagogue, and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Verse 27, and they were all amazed. So they were questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. Skip down to verse 38, Mark 1. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Why does Jesus say he came out of obscurity to preach? Verse 38, and he went throughout, 39, he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Chapter two, verse two, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And in verse 13, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. So when Jesus comes He comes preaching, and he comes teaching. That's the model, what he gives. But the word here in in, uh, Romans 16 for preaching is the word kerygma. It's a a public declaration uh, or a proclaimed aloud by a herald sent by a king. That's the historical connotation and meaning of that word. The public declaration of a proclamation that's out loud by a herald who's sent by a king. What Paul's not talking about here is an investigative lecture. He's also not talking about a facilitated discussion. He's not talking about a group effort in discovery. All of those things have their places, but that's not what Paul is saying is the prime, one of the three primary ways that we're going to be strengthened to endure. He's talking about a herald. What a herald did, he would run ahead of the king, get to the village, get up on the stump in the middle of town square, Unroll the scroll written by the king and say, hear ye, hear ye. The king has spoken thusly. And he's not there giving his own flair. It's not about him at all. The king is coming. The guy is irrelevant. The herald is irrelevant. He's just there to tell everybody this is what the king has said and this is what the king demands. That's what a herald is. at the word kerygma or another, trans- or another uh, uh, iteration of it is Caruso? And that's what Paul's saying is going to build us up and strengthen us to endure is the preaching of the gospel, the heralding of the gospel. Now, we've seemed to have lost touch in in modern evangelicalism in the Western world because what we've reduced preaching down to is just mere decisionalism. That, That when the gospel is preached, all that means is that somebody gets up front and tells everybody to make a decision. And since we've reduced it down to that, when somebody has made a decision, then they think, oh, I don't, need, I don't need the gospel anymore. I've heard the preaching of the gospel. I no longer need that because we've reduced it down to just a decision being made. But if that's your position or your um, understanding of what gospel preaching is, can I ask you this morning to reconsider it and reconsider it and frame it with this question? When is Jesus ever not your primary need? At any point, before or after the gospel has ever been received by you, when is Jesus ever not your primary need? He's always our primary need because the preaching of the gospel, this is what it does, it exalts God as perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, altogether other than us, pristine and pure. And it plummets mankind to being depraved and unholy and sinful. And then the only right response, because God is so righteous, he has no other option but to plan on at some point unleashing his full and undiluted wrath on that sinful mankind. He has no other choice because that sinful creation that he's made has rebelliously declared themselves to be his equals. So he has to do that. That's his only response. This is only available action. And the horrific news for all of humanity is that there is no hope of avoiding that wrath unleashed in all of creation. Anywhere in creation, there is no hope. The only hope that can come to you must come from outside of creation. And this is where we see God's infinite kindness and his unfathomable love by his own free choice said, I will come into creation and I will provide a way of hope. I will not only provide mere hope, Hope, but promise. Complete and invincible assurance to everyone who believes in my promise. Not just hope, invincible assurance. And that promise comes to full fruition in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As he walked here on the earth, Christ is the only hope of salvation for rebellious, depraved, and sinful people. He's the only hope. And that's not true because God just typed in a cheat code into the system that he made. Hey, if you just run around here to Jesus, you can avoid all of this stuff that has to happen. No, no, no. He went straight through the middle that we can be saved from God's unmitigated wrath because Christ lived perfectly as unsinful, as unrebellious, and pristinely pure morally and righteously. And he covers us In that righteousness, head to toe, when we put our faith in Him. And that message that we just did right there, that's merely the introductory statement to the introduction of what it is to preach the gospel. Because in that message, we didn't talk about justification, sanctification, glorification, redemption, reconciliation, restoration, propitiation. We didn't talk about what it means to be redeemed, what is redemption. We didn't talk about mercy, faith, or grace. And that, that, that's all encased in the gospel. We didn't talk about Jesus being our perfect prophet, priest, and king. We didn't talk about that. We didn't talk about Jesus being the fulfillment of the prophecy of Genesis three fifteen that he's the one who's going to come and eliminate evil altogether. That's all the preaching of the gospel. And it just goes on and on and on. So if we tire of hearing the gospel preached, and if we, we've grown weary of it, then I would suggest that one of three things is wrong. Either the preaching itself is insufficient and human-centric, or you've lost sight of your own sinfulness, or you've lost sight of God's holiness. Because if you have a right perspective on God's holiness and your sinfulness, you're, you're starving for gospel preaching. Please tell me more about Jesus having bridged that gap between my sinfulness and God's holiness. I need to see that revealed from Genesis, from to Malachi, and then from Matthew to Revelation. I want to see it all. I need to hear more of it because my sinfulness was so bad, and God's holiness is so high that I can't even believe the freedom that I have in Christ to approach Him. But I know that I do. Please tell me more about that. I want to hear more of that. I want to hear. I want to know how to worship God more clearly because of that. What could possibly give us more strength? Than that, than things like Romans 5 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us while we were yet sinners because Christ died for us. What could make us more joyful than hearing that over and over again? Or that our publican prayer, as Jesus places it to us in Luke chapter 18, where He just beats His chest and says, Have mercy on me, a sinner. He knows he's a publican. He knows that he's a sinner and that we can hear God say from end to end of the Bible, you do have mercy. I have forgiven your sin. Why do we tire of hearing that? It's either because we don't think we're that sinful or we don't think that God's that holy or the preaching is completely man-centered and not focused upon God because it should be the greatest thing that we should ever hear. I think we've been disconnected from the gospel preaching as a facet of God's strengthening to us because over time in in the Western church, as preaching grew more pathetic, what we did is we just asked our preachers to find a new method. This isn't working anymore, so do something else. And they wanted to keep their jobs, just said, okay, and they did it. I mean, otherwise, how could you explain that in our Arguably, arguably, our most Christian era of American history is when preachers were titling sermons things like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Would that sermon fly, that title be allowed in most churches in the United States today? No. That's because we've disconnected from what it is. Preaching today doesn't get the reaction that Jesus got when he preached. In uh, John 10, he's, he has one such scenario comes to us. It says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? You don't normally say that. Like, why are you going to kill me again when you're faced with that? But when you're Jesus, you do. And the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself to be God. So like, no, 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 you, you got it wrong, Jesus. We love it when you do miracles. We love it when you feed us from fish and loaves. But we hate you when you speak. We hate what you say. We love what you do, but we hate your words. Your compassion, we're all about. But your preaching, we want to murder you for it. That's what Jesus' reaction to preaching was. And then his disciples have a very different reaction when their eyes are open to the truth elsewhere in John, in John 6, 67 and 69. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? When Jesus stopped doing the miracle of loaves and fishes, everybody bailed on him. And he told his disciples, do you want to leave also? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, where else are we going to go to get the words He doesn't say, where else are we going to go to get the works or have the fun or get the blessing or see the crazy miracles? He says, you alone have words of eternal life. We want more words. Where else are we going to go to get those? That's the response to, to gospel preaching. They loved him for his words and they wanted more of it. The second way we're strengthened is by the revealed word of God. Look at verse 25 as it continues on. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. The gospel was a mystery. You see that word mystery? It's not because the gospel was difficult to understand, but because the fullness of the gospel was revealed over time. It was always in the mind of God, but it was progressively revealed. See, Abraham had no idea that he was going to continue on Genesis 3. He knew that, but he didn't know that he was going to continue it on through the lineage of David. He had no idea who David was. And Esther doesn't know, hey, I'm going to step in between this crazy king and killing all Jews everywhere um, so that the promised Messiah can continue to come through this lineage. She just knew she was going to obey God in that moment. Even though it's a part of redemptive history in the gospel story, it wasn't fully revealed. But what Paul is saying now is that we know it all. It's been completely revealed to us now today with a closed Bible. We have it. 2 Peter 1.3. Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life, meaning eternal life, and godliness, meaning living as a Christian, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We have everything we need because it's been fulfilled and finished in Christ. Hebrews 1.1 and 2 says the same thing. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We're done hearing from prophets because we have Jesus. We have the completed gospel. We have everything. We have it all with us. And God is to be glorified and we are to be strengthened because of his Bible. God's glorified by his Bible because when we read it, we find out what's true about him and then we worship him accordingly. And we are strengthened by the Bible because when we read it, we find out what's true about God and that reassures us as to who he is. See, the Bible, God effectively says in the Bible, here's the whole plan laid out for you in a way you can understand it. Beginning to end, here's the whole thing. Quite literally, the meaning of life and the purpose of the universe is in these pages. This is where it is. We have that in the scriptures. We get the perspective of the supernatural as he looks down on history, the present, and the future. And God lets us into his very mind, the mind of God. He gives us a snippet of it in a way that we can understand. Ephesians 3, 8-10 says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, Now the unsearchable riches of Christ are being preached, Paul says, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. Now everybody can see the mystery. It's been opened up through the scriptures, hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. So the unsearchable riches of Christ, the plan of the mystery... And the manifold wisdom of God has been told to us in a language we can read and understand whenever we want to. And this is unbelievably encouraging to us as Christians. Have you ever thought and wondered if you've thought much about history um, and the word of God and preaching and things, things goes on? And the Protestant Reformation in Europe in the 1500s and then the Puritan movement that came after that in the 1600s, which eventually led to them coming over to the United States... Have you ever wondered why back then when everything was agrarian and all, your time was precious, there's no wasted time, why were they listening to sermons that lasted for an hour and a half or more? Why, why, why give that much time to that? You got plowing to do, you have work to do, who's watching your animals, what's taking care? Why are you listening to an hour and a half long sermon in those eras, 1500s and 1600s? I think it's because they could still remember what it smelled like when their friends and family were burned at the stake for translating the Bible into a language that they could read and understand. And then the other ones were burned at the stake for preaching that Bible to them in a way that they could read and understand. I think that's why they could deal with that. And even a lot of Puritan churches, they would put on the pulpit an hourglass, and when the hourglass ran down, if the sermon was only okay, they would just pray and leave. But if the sermon was going pretty well, they would come up and turn the hourglass over again and give the preacher a whole other hour. We're going to get one of those, by the way. And I'm just kidding. The clock's counting down on me right now. But, but that's, that's, why, that's why it's encouraging to us. This is what brings life, the word of God, because it is spoken by God. And the last and the third thing that we're strengthened by is progressive sanctification. Verse 26. He says, according to the command of the eternal God to do what? To bring about the obedience of God of faith. What is the command of the eternal God? Leviticus 11.45 tells us, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. Jesus reiterates it in another way in Matthew 5.48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So God's uh, overarching command to all people is be as perfect as me. Be as holy as me. To which we all reply, God, we can't. And then God answers back, I know I did it for you. That's why we have 2 Corinthians 5 21. For our sake he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We get to become righteousness because Jesus became our sin. So therefore we can command we can obey the overarching command, because judicially now. We have been declared perfect. We have been declared holy. And for the rest of our lives, it's an expression of that obedience to grow in it. Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We are now capable of obeying God, and we do so by faith. We can actually be pleasing to him. Progressive sanctification is powered by God and it strengthens us to endure. Listen, nobody is where they want to be spiritually. Nobody's like, yeah, I'm I'm exactly where I need to be. I'm exactly as holy and as like Christ as I need to be. Nobody can say that. We all stumble. Our sinfulness frustrates us at every turn. But nevertheless, we were recreated in, in Christ for good works. Therefore, we will grow. Sin won't dominate us. That's a fact. Remember back in Romans 6, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace and freedom from sin that true conversion brings inevitably leads to sanctification. We do grow. Romans six twenty two, but not that you have been set free from sin, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. That's the obedience of faith Paul's talking about that strengthens us, that I can look behind me and go, I'm not where I need to be, but I'm not where I was then. I'm a little bit more like Christ than I was then. I know a little bit more about God than I did then. And it may be incremental, but it is still encouraging. I'm moving in a direction by the power of God because the ultimate purpose of our salvation is not our rescue from hell. The ultimate purpose of our salvation is, is us becoming obedient to God. That what was done by Adam in the garden, disobedience, is undone by Christ, the second Adam on the cross. Perfect obedience. And now that we, as those who are in Christ, the second Adam, we necessarily progress in obedience in the likeness of our begotten brother. And then the final word comes in verse 27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ Amen. This God we worship is not only able to strengthen us as feeble human beings, he's the only wise God, the only entity that will receive eternal glory. Here, Paul highlights God's wisdom because the message of the book of Romans is the gospel and how the gospel is created and how it all fits together. That could only happen in the mind of God. That could only proceed from an infinite being. Nobody has made up another gospel. Every other religion is works-based. This is the only one that's grace-based. This is the only one that's God is big enough to be grace-based, to save his people. So we praise God as as the only wise God because the beginning, the middle, and the end of the gospel is God. People are saved, and that comes from God. The salvation is sustained by him, and it's all for the purpose of attaining to His eternal glory. That's one of the Protestant Reformation's uh, five major tenets is in Latin. Soli Deo Gloria. Only for the glory of God. For God's glory alone. Do we exist and do we perpetuate His mission? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which came a little bit right after that Protestant Reformation, was basically a doctrinal statement of the faithful churches back then. And they had a way to teach kids just biblical truths, and the first question in that list of questions was, what is the chief end of man? Why do you exist? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's where Paul ends up. That's where he concludes. The Westminster Catechism just pulled that right out of Romans 11 and Romans 16, those two doxologies that we've we've gone through and read. So this is what I want to conclude with. I want to ask you this. Could verse 27 be written on your tombstone that so-and-so lived to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen? All they cared about was God getting more glory. All they cared about was that glory coming through, through Jesus Christ, the avenue. Can that be true of you? We would be remiss if we got to the end of this constitution of the gospel and we did not say, are you saved by that gospel have you been made new by that gospel is this the the chief goal of your life is to glorify god and enjoy him forever the only wise god to him is glory not to you not to your hobbies not to your kids not to your parents not to your job not to your company not to your country be glory forever and ever amen but to god be glory forever and amen is that true about you and if not, what are you going to do about it? Because if you don't enjoy God now, what makes you think you're going to enjoy heaven? All That's all there is, is enjoying and praising God. And if you don't like it now, that should be a sign to you. Maybe I'm not destined for that heaven where all we do is enjoy God forever. And if that's you right now, then you need to know this. That Jesus Christ, the one whom through this glory comes, is standing at the ready with his robe of righteousness, waiting for you to put your faith in him. And then he will wrap you in that robe and you will instantaneously become acceptable and pleasing to this God. And you will be present with him and enjoy him forever. If you have not done that, don't go to sleep tonight without doing that. That's the whole point of Romans. That's the whole point of the Bible, is to trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church.